In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I am so excited to be here today. We have two incredible people in the world of psychedelics. And if you are as as enthralled as I am about learning about this space, and if you are thankful to be alive right now because you realize how much times are changing, then you are going to be so excited to listen to this podcast. We have with us first, we have, I will introduce Dr. Jessica Reverend Dr. Jessica Rochester. She is a ordained interfaith minister with a doctorate in divinity, a transpersonal counselor. She trained in the work of Dr. Roberto Saggioli and trained with Dr. Stanislav Grob from 1986 to 2018. She's been a workshop leader, a teacher in private practice. She is also a lecturer on consciousness, non-ordinary states of consciousness, self-discovery, spiritual development, personal transformation. She is also the incredible Mahadrina and president of the Coup de Montreal and Santo Daime Church. She founded in 1997 in Montreal, Canada from 2001 to 2017. She's so much more than that, and you're going to learn all about her. However, we have an equally incredible woman that's also sharing some space with us, Dr. Sandra Dreisbach. She's an ethicist, a psychedelic ethics specialist with a master's and a doctorate in philosophy, exploring ethical decision-making and moral psychology, an ethics advisor, active in psychedelic education, integration, and advocacy, a leader in the Santa Cruz Psychedelic Society, as well as one of the incredible co-founders of Epic, which everyone should check out. <laughs> she is also a teacher in bioethics, worked in the tech industry, and is a Reiki master in two lineages. I think it's important to say that Dr. Jessica Rochester is also the incredible author of a series of books called Ayahuasca Awakenings. And I apologize for leaving so much more out, but I would be here all day if I read all of your accolades, lady. Thank you so much for being here. How are you today? Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, a real pleasure. Always a pleasure. Fantastic. So with... Let me let me start this conversation this way. The two of you have really accomplished a lot in your life. So maybe I'll start with you, Dr. Jessica. Dr. Jessica, 
How did your relationship with Dr. Sandra Dreisbach come into fruition? Well, just one of those lovely synchronicities. I, I you know, <laughs> LinkedIn is um, about 10 years ago, more or less, um, a couple of, of colleagues, clients had said to me, you should go on LinkedIn, you know, it's more of a business thing. I'm really not good with social media. I'm really quite old school. I'd rather sit down with people and have a conversation. Uh, I don't get a lot of this stuff on social media. How can you have 2000 friends with people you never met? And you're not sure if that's really <laughs> them. <laughs> okay. So I, I'm really kind of from another era on this, you know, whereas I love recently, I heard an indigenous elder say that a relationship is built on a thousand cups of tea okay mm -hmm. and i i kind of agree with that you know there's acquaintances and then there's friends and then there's colleagues and and you know then there's the human species you know so it was through linkedin and i do not remember if i reached out to her she reached out to me i have absolutely no memory it was just a few months ago that we kind of connected and, and we both said oh wow i love what you're doing <laughs> okay it looks like we have some things in common even with our kind of different backgrounds different education and training and life experiences we had so much in common and then we met and talked, and it became hilarious. I don't know <laughs> what you want to share, dear Dr. Sandra, but it became hilarious. We have the same astrological signs. We have the, there were so many things that were absolutely identical. Um, never mind all the differences. There was this wonderful balance of what was, you know, in alignment. And so I said to her, "We have to talk together about ethics." And I'm going to bug my friend George Monty to see if he can host us together so we can do this so that's, that's fascinating how we met and dr sandra you have an incredible background in ethics was it sort of like finding a long lost sister when you found dr jessica rochester <laughs> well i feel like we have more cups of tea to go yeah we'll see. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i love that story i love that that uh that wisdom you know, because I, I often will tell people like we're friends first and everything else is extra because like I really want to ground it in that sort of relationship. But it's so beautiful and so powerful and amazing when you find that the cups of tea are overflowing naturally, you know. Um, and so I'm really excited um, about this beginning friendship and, and where it's going to lead. That's it's I'm excited, too. I think it's really going to be the beginning of some very interesting emerging ideas and i think that we're on the forefront of that and it's i think we're very fortunate but it's also very challenging to be where we are right now because there's this whole world kind of re-emerging and i'm sure that there's people who have come before us who have figured it out but it's up to us to kind of reinterpret it and try to give it our own spin on there and i'm curious you two incredible women have had a conversation about ethics in the world of psychedelics and i'm wondering dr sandra if you could just kind of start us off like when you think about ethical behavior and psychedelics and some of the challenges that are happening on the forefront, what do you think about? It's funny when you when you ask me that question in this moment, um, and, and it's going to sound very self-centered, but <laughs> but it's like I think about me and I think about my relationship and I think, of you know, because uh, for me, it's very important to ground ethics in the personal in your own personal relationship and your own personal journey and your own personal relationships with the plant medicines and and um, and and spiritually um, and and so so that's that's what comes up so it's first and foremost about what what work am i doing what's arising for me and and so even if i'm looking out more outwards um i recognize that i'm also looking inwards at the same time 
that, that is really well said. Dr. Jessica Rochester, what what is some of your ideas that you see on the forefront of psychedelics, entheogens, and ethics? Well, you know, to reach back, um, you know, it's a great question. And, and you know, hope there's going to be lots more along those lines that we can talk about today. So what seemed important to me was um, and continues to be, I've now written three codes of ethics. One co-wrote with our team uh, when we were writing and then publishing the research we did, um, Entheogens in, and Psychedelics in Canada Proposals for a New Paradigm, is, you know, this came out of conversations that I had with colleagues where my main concern was the ethics. But taking a step back, let's look at when did ethics codes start? And how did they evolve? Where did they come from? And this is the part that really gets me interested, okay? And we can look and we can see nearly 4,000 years ago, there's recorded evidence in ancient Egypt, Samaria, um, you, know, you, you know, take it back, um, Greek, ancient Greeks, of course, with their philosophers, of course, Dr. Sandra is gonna be able mm -hmm. to possibly bring in pieces around that, having studied philosophy, but we can see that you know, because we're humans and there's human behavior and words, actions, deeds, et cetera, and intentions are always either questionable. Okay, so we need to have some agreement as how we're going to conduct ourselves. So some things are laws and other things are code of ethics and they meet and they join. And there's, I've tried to always explain to people, there's there's lines, ethics, and then in, in our contemporary situation there's ethics that can get breached and then it can move continue to move until it's a civil issue and then it becomes a criminal issue okay so there's radiations in this so we see there's deep roots in civilizations and cultures where people struggled with trying to address um, what we're calling ethics you know and then what's really fascinating is you turn that coin over and then you see what were people doing with sacred plants for the last many thousand years? How did they manage it? They didn't have codes of ethics, you know. Um, they weren't sitting around philosophizing as to what laws they could draw up around this. What were they doing and how were they handling it? So the roots in my tradition, which is the one I really only feel I can speak with any even small measure of authority, is my tra personal tradition, which is Sankal Daimi, the roots is Eowaskeri. And so in my study and research of the roots of my tradition, it's very clear to me how the sacred plants were always in the hands of the medicine men and women and the shamans. And, and that this was an accepted part of a community and tribal kind of spoken unspoken agreement in which people were recognized as being the medicine man or woman and the medicine or the shaman shamaness based on how they conducted themselves. Nobody marched into the middle of the circle in front of the sacred fire and said, by the way, I'm your new shaman, okay? These things just don't happen. They'd be laughed at. It's like, go, go sit down. We all know you're a fisherman or you're a carver, or, you know, you're a cook, you're a great cook, but you're certainly not the shaman, okay? And so people grew into these roles, often from young childhood, and that was the norm, is the elders would notice the 
characteristics of the young children and say this one's going to be a great warrior look at you <laughs> he fights everything okay and this one's going to be a wonderful whatever carver because look how she always is taking the wood and carving it and then there's the one that's already being able to read energy and guess what somebody needs and so everything's changed now and so we have these old systems that have their own wisdom and their own um you know, deep traditions and understanding and evolutions over thousands of years. And here we are now. What have we got? Yes, it needs to. Your question is terrific. How do we bring all of that wisdom into today? That's a challenge. Yeah, it is a challenge. I, I'm sure Dr. Sandra. So I just want to premise this to, or I would like to say that in this conversation, at any point in time, if you want to move it in a certain direction, please feel free. It's not, it's a free flowing conversation. And I, and I am very able to grab the steering wheel, but you two are probably better drivers than me. You have more experience driving. So feel free to grab the wheel if you need it. That so you're being not afraid said, of women drivers then. You know what? I come from a line of strong women and I, I find it, I find it attractive and warming and I find it very helpful to learn from people who know more than me, regardless of what construct they seem to be in today. So thank you for that. I, I, I'm curious, Dr. Sandra, you know, when I think about shaman and philosopher kings, and I know you have a background of philosophy, I'm often reminded of the plant kingdom because I think of cannabis, sativa, and indica. In some places, split off from each other. And so now you have these philosopher kings, like back in the, the, the classical teachings. And Dr. Jessica Rochester is talking about shaman. And on some level, aren't those two entities similar? Well, that's a that's a pretty deep question. I mean, well, first of all, I should mention, you know, since we were talking about <laughs> queens here, um, you know, there were philosopher queens and kings in terms of Plato's Republic. He recognized both well as having, you know, and he was really unique in his time period for actually recognizing that women had that same ability or authority. Um, and 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 it's interesting because a lot of people bring up the um, Elysian Mysteries schools or um, going even deeper into the Oracle at Delphi, you know, and Aristotle himself was going there and, and saw the women in that sense, um, who were then translated by priests of the time, um, who would go into an altered state of consciousness, some debate about what means and ways. And they actually had words carved on the entryway to come into the Oracle of Delphi. And the first one many people know is to know thyself. Mm. Um, another one was everything in moderation. Um, but if you think about when you're trying to seek wisdom, uh, you know, that sort of shamanic uh, lineages happened in all schools, all traditions, all lineages, all, all cultures throughout the world. And, uh, and, I, and this brings me back already between my original conversation with Jessica, which was, you know, we realized we had a similar lineage. And, I, and I've studied more um, in terms of trying to recapture the lineages that you know, I've been cut off from from colonialization to, you know, Celtic, Gaelic and Germanic, uh, you know, traditions, but also even looking at what have I been taught from a Western perspective from philosophy and looking deeper. Right. At the time period um, that you mentioned with the sort of Plato, Plato, if you know about uh, it went Socrates, Plato, Aristotle um, and Socrates, actually, I, I should correct. I think I said Aristotle earlier. Socrates was the one who went um, to seek and actually it was actually one of his students who went to seek um, the Oracle Delphi and asked who was the wisest, right? And, and the Delphi, Delphi Oracle apparently said at the time that, um, that he was. 
And, and he was pondering that. He's like, well, how is it that they thought that I was the wisest? And he realized the only thing that the only reason that it could possibly be is that he knew that he didn't know. Mm. That he knew the limits of, you know, you could even say wisdom or of the mind or of our own humanity or of his own seeking. And he was a philosopher who in his own time wrote nothing down. Um, what we know of him, um, we know from Plato. And he would go around um, talking to people and having conversations, that sort of Socratic dialogue technique um, that I definitely deeply appreciate. But I'm also deeply appreciate that that at the time of the Oracle of Delphi, people from around the world of that time would go seek the Oracle before they went to war, before they made major decisions. And, and there was a shamanic lineage there. Um, how much of it remains is a good question. But, but I think all of us, if we look back deep enough, we can find that history. That is really well said. Thank you for that. I, I'm curious to get both of your opinions on the, it seems like the more we move forward, the more we can look back to the past to find ways that worked. And we find ourselves now in this world where, whether it's, it's just, if you look at the corporate world or governance, it's kind of a mirror of ourselves. Like we're all guilty, right? We're all guilty of, of the tragedies that are unfolding in front of us. And so it's up to the individual, I think, in order to become the best version of ourselves to move this whole thing forward. And I think that's the way out, but it's very difficult. It's very difficult for people today to stand up in the face of authority because you may lose things. You have this attachment to fear. And so the qu question I'd like to pose to both of you is, what do you think is the relationship between the current psychedelic renaissance and fear? I'd like to start with you first, Dr. Jessica Rochester. Okay, uh, hold your thought and ask yeah, the question. Please. I really want to jump off something that Dr. Oh, Sanders said, okay? Yes, so, please. Because thank you so much. That was such a delicious wrap up of philosophy. <laughs> I enjoyed every word. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, at any rate, what I think is a big part of it, and this may partially answer your question, is it, as, as kind of the modern ages came and, and different things developed and, and science took its place, and, and, and then there was this division. And it's something that I speak about and have written about where we have this division between the body, the mind, and the soul, okay? And, 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 and Western civilization did that to a large degree, kind of formalized that division because the church had staked out, you know, the, the main European churches had, which are most, were mostly kind of Christian. And, um, they staked out their territory, okay, we own the soul, and the doctor says, well, wait a minute, we own the body, and then this emerging science, okay, the philosophers had been around forever, but psychiatry and psychology were, got on board much later, okay, those are much more recent, um, you know, uh, professionals and, uh, you know, with different maps from philosophy, but overlapping in many ways, and so it's that division where we kind of got our wholeness, the wholeness of me with me, okay, that my mind and my body are connected and my soul and they're all intertwined and one and we can talk about them, you know, uh, to as separate, but they aren't separate. And so how do we have a conversation with a language that is always inclusive? 
of the unique, um, you know, individuality of each person at the same time, the oneness. And so this is about inventing a language that we can discuss with each other, these principles, because otherwise it gets lost and we fall into our little mental constructs. And then we want to pack everything into its neat little box. So this belongs to psychiatry and this belongs mm -hmm. to that and this belongs to that. And therefore we can't kind of have a say on it. And until, until we go back to some of those old traditions, you know, the, the circles around the sacred fire where you hold the talking stick and where you get to share your, your thoughts and everything gets listened to and included. And how do we do that now? What does that look like? Stan Groff always taught us that we have to build a bridge between, between science and spirituality. And he really believed that transpersonal psychology was going to be part of that bridge, not the only piece of it, but it was going to be a good part of that bridge and helping to develop a language and a model that would be sufficient to embrace everybody to be able to talk together. So I have no idea if I answered your question. Absolutely. <laughs> Ask it again. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I admire the idea of the archaic revival of coming back to a place before we went out of bounds or before we became so divided. And I like the way that you brought about this idea of division. And I think you spelled it out really well and you showed a path. Dr. Sandra, what do you think about what Dr. Rochester said? Uh, you know, I could talk forever to Jen. Yeah, please do. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, to you too. I mean, like, you know, I'm just a talker. Okay. Maybe I should, this is maybe we should admit my own fears here. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But, um, but, you know, I, I think it's definitely true. I mean, uh, Western, uh, you know, mindset. Um, I mean, it, everything it, to me, energetically speaking, has the, the sort of yin and the yang, right? You know, the what's what's good about it is also going to be the shadow, which will interplay into your fear aspect here, right? So like the strength of analytical thinking and rational thinking is that is the ability to help us order, recognize, you know, um, and you can even argue a certain amount of control, like, you know, drawing between the lines, you know, there's, there's a beauty to that, but then there's a lack of freedom in that too, right? So the same thing, that's the strength of like maybe dividing up the body into to specializations. Mm. Like you're, you're the knee specialist, you're the heart specialist, you know, it's like, well, who's the human specialist, right? That sort of holistic is end up lost in the parts. And a lot of, you know, Eastern traditions kept um, that sense of holisticness. But 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 getting back to the strength and the weakness, it's like, well, if you emphasize the parts and the divisions, you may have knowledge or deeper knowledge of a particular aspects of that that piece, right? Um, even, even myself in focusing on ethics, like, well, there's some depth of knowledge I have from those Western traditions, but there's like, well, what am I missing? It's It's very much an analytical tradition. Uh, and, and so when I graduated, uh, then I was seeking for wholeness and for deeper spiritual meaning. And, and similarly, if we think about what, what does fear have to do with any of this? Mm. Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I'll even sometimes tell my kids, you know, we, we all have our strengths and we all have our weaknesses. Um, and that's part of what makes us human. And if we're living in our authentic selves, uh, then, you know, our natural strength should come forward and by working, getting also something Jessica was mentioning about working together, working in community, interrelationship is where we're actually in our biggest strength. 
we can recognize our individual roles or responsibilities or our strengths, um, but we need to also recognize our weaknesses and our fears um, in as much as we recognize our loves and our passions. And I think one of the things that psychedelic space does really well, at least in recognizing as important, is doing what we call shadow work. And, and you don't have to call it, you know, the dark shadow people sometimes let's talk about golden shadow, right? Um, that you're all your potentiality and your ability and your giftings you can be afraid of just as much as you can be afraid of, you know, um, um, being abused or being harmed or, or something else, right? Um, other fears that arise and, and psychedelic or, or transpersonal states as, as Jessica brings up, you know, there's lots of ways to get there. Um, you don't need to have psychedelic plant medicines to, to develop those relationships. Uh, and, and even pulling back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, um, shamanic lineages and people being identified as being maybe more highly sensitive or being more energetic or, or having, you know, a certain gifting, right? Like one's maybe seen as sort of, um, a, an aptitude or interest in like physical, you know, activity in a particular way, like they're the athlete or something like that. Um, yeah. versus someone who's seen as like, well, the, the sensitive child would have been identified as, uh, the, the shaman, right. Um, and our culture in some sense has been disconnected from that sense of wholeness and what we're learning now and what the gift psychedelics can bring us back into and right relationship can give us getting back into ethics is, mm. is recognizing the strength by looking at our weaknesses and the weakness mm. and looking only at our strengths. And the wisdom that is found in all traditions and how we actually really are um, better when we don't just look at the one and the many, but the many and the one as well. That was beautiful. It, there's a lot of points in there that that kind of ring true to the world I see emerging or the world that we see re-emerging. And if we were to just keep driving down this road and we continue to move into this world of ethics and psychedelics and entheogens, it seems to me what we're driving towards is this concept of the relationship between fear and money. Because I see that being a giant stop on the road to psychedelics. I see people with patents. I see other people that are over here trying to add different molecules to different things. And if, if, I, if I put on my, my, my hat of just observer, I, I'm not really fearful. I think that psychedelics is going to teach people that we need to realign our values. And right now money seems to be the thing we use as a barometer for values, but that's so not true. Like it's, we need to realign values. And I think psychedelics is doing that. I, I think that we're going to see this the same way that the, the hyphae and mushrooms when you grow them, they grow together. So too is our ideas of money coming together, but it's scary at first. And it brings us back to fear. And so I know that was kind of a shotgun out the back door well, right there. Ladies, are you really apologize, afraid but... of money? I mean, like, let's just be honest. Okay. Are you really afraid of money? I mean, is your is your money in your wallet going to come out and attack you in the middle of the night? You know, it's it's not. It's really not. You know, but so, you know, even in terms of corporatization mm. or privatization or colonialization or, you know, um, the, what are the fears? What are we really afraid of? And, and if you ask me, we're afraid of ourselves. Right. Right. Um, and we already know um, the harms that we've already caused and, and we're, we're getting to know them deeper, whether we're talking about and I've mentioned colonialism lots of different times, but it's 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 part of our own history since we're all, you know, white Western peeps here, um, <laughs> um, you know, owning owning even like the experience of sexism, racism, you know, privilege and and how that's shown up. And uh, one of the ways we've 
you know, symbolize that, um, you know, we don't have the language like Jessica was saying, mm. you know, there's metaphors, stories, analogies, money is a metaphor or a way of representing that sort of uh, that, that other fear about that's within ourselves and that we see in our world reflected in us, right. In that sense of mirroring. Mm. Um, and, and if we really, I mean, people are concerned because we already know we've caused harm to, to first peoples, um, to um, medicine keepers. Uh, they are not being honored. They're not the leaders of this movement. They're, they're frankly not. And it's not because they shouldn't be, but, but it's, it's, we're already still recognizing that we're, we're, we're in not in right relationship. And, and, and part of that healing and looking the shadows of all of it isn't just fears. It's what we don't want to look at. Wherever you're gazing, you're also knowing where you're not gazing. And, and now we're, I think psychedelics and plant medicines in this work, in this space is encouraging us to look at the shadows of capitalism, the shadows of what has, you know, the privilege of, of what, uh, or putting, you know, reason on a pedestal. There's, you know, that takes us away from our heart space. It disconnects us from nature. It disconnects us from ourselves. And, and I think you're in, in sense of some of what you're indicating earlier, we're, we're being drawn and being led in my mind or in a, in a spiritual way back to reconnection and right relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, you're speaking about fear and you asked a question about fear and, you know, I, I love all the things you just shared and totally agree with them. And, and, and just to take a little larger step back, you know, is that in, in, in my spiritual practices of over 50 years and 27 years now in the Santo Daimi, what I came to understand is the deepest fear is having all revealed to us. Mm. Our, our, for, for most people, the deepest fear is to, um, to return to the divine because knowing that you know, everybody, we all kind of project onto the divine, whatever story we've been taught, whatever story we believe, whatever customs we've been, you know, exposed to, and, and, and our fear of inadequacy, our fear of having failed, our fear of our mistakes, our fear of everything we've shoved into the, under the rug and in the closet, you know, um, that we will be unworthy in front of what and who we believe the divine to be but that lies in the core of our idea of separateness. I love that Einstein quote of, it's an illusion. What's separate? You know, the collective unconscious and I are one. Okay, everything's one. The separateness is an illusion, but it's a really good illusion. You know, it's great. It's got most of us believing it. And we, we have to want to change that mind step so that we can step into you know this is something in the santo daimi that, that we're always kind of it's always coming up people drink and oh i had this marvel experience i saw all those visions and you know that that's that's the falling in love stage okay and then there's the marriage okay <laughs> 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 with all of the <laughs> rainbows and unicorns and it's you know so true. it's so true yeah. and, and so all of a sudden we're seeing ourselves from a completely different perspective and and you know this is all part of in in you know you can read it on our website on our church website the the daimi helps us to see the best of ourselves at the same time in this very profoundly neutral, calm, 
you know, compassionate way, it shows us all our flaws and our mistakes and our errors. And it's not this angry Jehovah-style God that's shaking a gun or this kind of Catholic version of uh, 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 to hell, <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. Peter at the gates, okay, where are you going? Not in here, okay? So all of those stories are really powerful and they've gone in deep. And, and but what happens when we actually move into non-ordinary states of consciousness by whatever means, meditation, sacred plants, what have you, is what we find is something completely different. We pass through, we have to pass through our own judgment. The, mm. the toughest judge in the universe is quite at home inside of me, okay? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's making a new relationship with our inner judge, making a new relationship with our beliefs and our perceptions about who we are and the reality of the world. And, and then, you know, this is where sacred plants and psychedelics, if, if they are not within the framework of ethical guidelines, then that's where everything can fall apart. And so why are ethical codes necessary for work in non-ordinary states of consciousness? Even more so for us to understand them in contemporary use and how they're being used currently than how they were used in indigenous traditions and philosophical traditions. And, and so I want to tell a quick story that in, in I'd come to the Central Daimi, I, I had done training with Jack Cornfield, the American Buddhist teacher, and uh, mainly in part with the work that he was doing with Stan Graf, Groff during my training. So I, I staffed at retreats and, and, and what fabulous teachers, Jack Cornfield. And anyway, so he published this book, which I highly encourage all our listeners to buy and read. And it's after the ecstasy, the laundry. Okay. Yeah. And he, you know, the, he, this was written 19, 19, 2099, 2000, somewhere around there. Okay. And of course, as soon as it was off the press, I bought a copy, read it. And then I, in it, he says, if you've joined a spiritual tradition that doesn't have a code of ethics, write your own and take it to the elders and explain that in our modern cultures, in our civilization, we actually have to have it as ethics codes. That what existed in their traditions for the Rinpoches and the gurus and the shamans, what existed in their tribal context, in their community, once you pluck them out and bring them into our culture, then there has to be that language so that anybody picking up the teachings and everything that we're, we're, we're in a different setting now, okay? Guru went home, Rinpoche went home, you know? And, and how do we take those teachings and bring them into our culture? So I called him up and I said, I've written a code of ethics. Can I send it to you, <laughs> please, Jack? And so he says, yeah, 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 I'll send it. So he did. And I said, he wrote back and he says, I don't think you left anything out. I don't think he added anything that doesn't need, you know, doesn't need to be there. Best of luck. Let me know how it goes. And so I highly encourage. And then Kylia Taylor, she wrote a book called The Ethics of Caring. She was one of my training supervisors. Uh, in, when I was training you know, decades and decades ago, when I was in the training with Stan Groff. And she had, had just published that book. 
I was in the process of publishing it when I was in the training with her shortly thereafter. And it is an excellent book that addresses, you know, ethics specific to non-ordinary states of consciousness and how much a, a greater sense of sensitivity to all the regular things that are in the codes, but because of the heightened awareness and the susceptibility of individuals in non-ordinary states, that that the setting has to be extremely aware of what they're doing and how they're doing it and what they're bringing in. So, yeah, Dr. Sandro, I answered your question, but <laughs> better than I could have possibly imagined. Thank you for that, Dr. Sandro. What if you were going to continue that part of the conversation? What would you add to that? Um, well, I would say that yes, and <laughs> mm, yes, and. Which is something we like to see in the psychedelic space, um, um, and also an impromptu. But I mean, but, but, but the idea being, um, like, one thing I'd like to bring up now, because um, a lot of a lot of communities do have ethics codes, and there's a couple of different challenges. And I do love Kylie's book, by the way. I want to give her recognition, and and she she was one of the people, at least in the, a Western mindset, where it's bringing a lot of these sort of eth ethos to light, um, and. Uh, it's it's the fact that first of all i like to say that, that it should be a living document not a dead document yes right um and we're changing we're always you know reflecting there's new situations things that you couldn't have foreseen when you originally wrote the document um and and you have a living group of community of people and and you know they're not dead i mean like you know not that we don't want to include the living dead i mean in the sense <laughs> of not zombies but in the <laughs> But in the sense that I, I mean, spiritually, I recognize that they're all with us. Um, um, but uh, um, so there, there's that. Also, um, one way I like to talk about it, too, is like, uh, you know, your code, you know, is, is supposed to be a way like having like a mission statement or a value statement. It's a way to indicate what your North Star is, that what are your values? What What is guiding? Right. Um, if, if the codes are like the boundaries, the boundaries um, or the, you know, uh, people talk about like, well, you should set healthy boundaries in your life or in your relationships. And, and one thing that always grips me on that is that, well, you got to understand that those boundaries are set by your values. Mm. So like if you're, if you care about honesty and being an integrity, then guess what your boundary is, you know, then it's someone who's being disrespectful or dishonest mm. or not an in integrity or establishing if it's an integrity, like, you know, Jessica, you know, it wouldn't be an integrity for me to serve ayahuasca, right? So, you know, that would be a boundary for me, right? Um, and so the codes actually is a way literally codifying what those boundaries are based on some sort of central ground or North Star or compass of value. But that doesn't, the codes don't necessarily tell you and neither does the value in and of itself tell you how to navigate. If we're a ship sailing in the middle of the night in the, in the Pacific or Atlantic, or wherever seas you may be traveling, your internal seas of consciousness, <laughs> right? Um, it helps to know what that that is before you go in. That set, that intention, that mindset that um, Jessica's also bringing up. Also, what what other people are bringing in, but it's also important to know, you know, well, how do you navigate it when you're there? Um, how how do you use um, that compass and make use of that north star to to guide your path? Um, how do you support people in a community if one person gets sick? Who shows up to man that that part of the rope, right? Because um, that's you know we're human, and 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 this is the other piece I'd like to bring up too is there's a sense sometimes that we should ethics means that we're supposed to be perfect, and and if anything I would say you know it's quite the contrary. It's a commitment to being an in integrity and recognizing that we're not. 
Um, and, and having a North Star doesn't mean you're always going to be on perfect North or magnetic North. It means that you're going towards it. Um, and it's funny, um, I don't always bring up biblical references, but like sin, um, the origin of the word sin um, has to do with missing the mark. Um, if you think about a target, um, hitting the bullseye would be the mark. Um, people being born in sin, um, in terms of, you know, one way of interpreting this information is to say that we're not at 100%. We're not going to hit the bullseye because we're human, we're perfect. And it's not to say and to condemn us for being human. We don't yell at the baby for falling down when they're learning to walk, right? We recognize that they're learning to walk and that stumbling is part of the process. And so in the same sense, our codes and our value systems and our communities should be creating more space and more compassion and love for the fact that our own humanity um, and grow with us. And, and I often look to nature to help inspire me for that. You know, um, nature helps to support one another and interrelationship is where we all thrive. Um, if we have weeds or things that, you know, um, create separation, we tend not to survive as well if we don't recognize that we're really in an interdependency within okay. one another. Back to what Jessica was bringing up at the beginning, this illusion of separateness is very much true. Yeah, that's really uh, well said. Totally, totally <laughs> loving, you know, the, the North Star and the navigating. Uh, in the Central Daimi, we talk about it being like a boat. And... Hmm. Um, and the, there's the captain and the crew and everybody has their duties and their responsibilities and yeah. we work together because we all know our places and what our responsibilities are when the boat sets off, okay? And guided by the North Star and yet, you know, you can think you've gone out with, okay, you went out with the tide, <laughs> okay? But then you know when the wind's gonna change, when the waves are gonna get big and it's the navigating. And, you know, so it's a, it's a, often a analogy that is used in the Santo Daimi that you have to know how to navigate through the darkness and the storms. And uh, this is a big problem with people who, you know, George and I have talked many times about, you know, some of the things we're touching on now. And um, how do you navigate in the darkness and the storms? And if you don't have the North Star and you don't have a compass, because you haven't established what the North Star is and you thought you didn't need a compass, okay, for whatever reason. So these kind of pop-up shamans and these instant psychedelic guides and stuff who don't have who don't have a foundation. This is how I see it. I'm not intending to it to be anything but an educational process where we all look into ourselves. You just said it would be out of integrity or something to the effect of it would be out of integrity for me to attempt to serve ayahuasca. And I bow to this. I bow to this. This wisdom of knowing. This wisdom of knowing that I what I there's three states. There is what I know I know. I know how to drive a car. I do not know how to fly a plane. Okay. So there's what I know I know. There's what I know I don't know. I just said it. I do not know how. And then there's what I don't know I don't know. And, and that place is something, you know, you referred to it when you were speaking about, you know, ancient Greek philosophers and Socrates. And it was like, yeah, you're, you've got that job because you are willing to embrace that you don't know. And, and that speaks to a great wisdom that our kind of Western civilization egos 
there's not a lot of space for that in the the power hierarchies that we've developed and the role models that Western civilization has chosen. And this idea that you were speaking to about perfection, um, that, that this is a really important thing. Thank you for bringing it up because that's a big deal in, in our culture, this perfect, you know, the perfect look, the perfect car, the perfect mm -hmm. lifestyle, the perfect job, you know, our, our, the perfect love, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, the romantic myth, let's not go down that road, you know, that, um, and what a trip up that one is in non-ordinary mm -hmm. states of consciousness. Look at all of the, you know, <laughs> that's been created when attraction turns into something else. So, you know, this this idea of needing to be perfect. I, I happen to have a dress that says on it, uh, perfectly imperfect. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And and so how do we how do we how do we embrace our humanity? ethically and 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 how do we accept that without shame okay it's the shame piece i think as much we were talking about fear yeah you know with probably a lot more to say about fear but we haven't talked about shame and i think that shame is a big issue in our culture um simply because of how things have evolved in which we have not been addressing, we haven't had a space for a dialogue, for a discussion about what shame really is and, and, and how to, we all hide the things that we're ashamed of. You know, that's what we're kind of taught. I think um, probably one of the books that, that I found most helpful that I would, you know, through the decades, recommend to people with John Bradshaw's book, if you don't know oh, it. Oh, I know Bradshaw. <laughs> Fabulous. Healing the Shame That Binds You. And what I loved about it is he says, often it's not even our shame. We're carrying somebody else's shame, ancestral mm -hmm. shame, because granddad was an alcoholic mm -hmm. or, or, you know, our auntie, yeah. somebody or other did this and we were, you know. So how society used shame to control and manage things that was deemed other so if you weren't from my religion then that your religion was bad okay if you weren't from my ethnicity then so all of these divisions and the load of shame that has come with you know needs to be an important part of the conversation it brings up an interesting point like if we see that the best predictor of future behavior is past relevant behavior. And we bring it back to this idea of ships or, or shame. Like, you know, usually when ships show up, it's a pretty bad thing that happens. You know, if we look back to history, when a ship full of people show up, it's probably not good for the indigenous people. And that, you know, if we just tie that back, I think that ties back to shame, generational trauma. And, you know, the history seems to be, the best predictor of history or future of the future tends to be past relevant behavior. So if we see shame, we see ships showing up and conquering things like why wouldn't that happen again in the psychedelic community? It does. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Who are the pirates? Who are the pirates? <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, I think, I think uh, if anything, um, 
uh, you, you know, when she, when Jessica, when you bring up shame, it made me think about vulnerability, you know, um, and, and even authenticity and a willingness. Mm. Um, and, and I think one of the gifts of, of journeys of deeper journeys and being vulnerable in community, um, whether it's a community of, of yourself <laughs> or another or a larger community that, that it's a willingness to, it's again, we're coming back to that shadow work, to the fears, to the shame, like, you know, where did that come from? Is this mine? You know, which part do I own? Which part am I, you know, uh, you know, what part, you know, if like I'm working through a, a fear, like I have, I've had uh, in terms of doing my own internal work, you know, I've had fear of, of being angry because I'm mm -hmm. supposed to be a good girl. I even got a PhD in it. I worked really hard. <laughs> <laughs> you are literally seeing some of my shadows and vulnerability, but, but it's like, you know, the, the, the same element, like you can go into the high vibration or the low vibration of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like the good aspect or the, the you know, good, you know, but it, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it is, you know, well, you know, to, to try and be an in integrity, to have a good character, to be virtuous, to be willing to be vulnerable at the right times. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and learning that discernment, that wisdom piece, um, gosh, you know, you're going to bring up Greek philosophers again for me. I, like, why, why, why are all the Greeks getting some credit today? But uh, like Aristotle <laughs> talked about um, virtue as being the sort of mean between two extremes of vice, um, mm -hmm. one vice of excess and one vice of deficiency. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, courage, um, it, you know, that that virtue of courage is having the wisdom of discernment to know um and to work on, because uh, Aristotle also recognized that we were human, we were bringing this element too, that you may be born, let's say, maybe you're more courageous, or maybe you're more cowardly by, by a certain nature or nurture, didn't even matter to him to an extent. Um, but through habit, through practice, you can work towards the virtue. But a deficiency would be like total absence of that trait, which would be cowardice, or a total presence or overly presence, like the excess would be audaciousness. You're jumping off a cliff without even looking if there's water there, right? You know, <laughs> or the lemming mindset, you're just following, right? Um, that's not real bravery. That's the absence or, or, or a certain blindness. Um, but wisdom is, you know, that people saying, seeing, having the fear and doing it anyway, um, but knowing and having that wisdom of the virtue of what makes it courageous. It's like, I know, I know I'm being vulnerable right now. I know I'm taking a risk right now, but it's more important for me to be vulnerable um, and to risk that possible shame because um, it's important. If I'm, if I'm not willing to do it, how can anyone else do the same? Mm. Or how can I heal this shame in my family or this experience or, or how, um, you know, since Jessica and I also happen to be two women, um, you know, uh, how sexism has affected us and, and how intergenerationally, how has that been shifted? Mm -hmm. I could have judgment for my ancestors or women before me, but like um, what, you know, understanding the, the wisdom that they brought and how I'm able to go forward because of what they were able to conquer and work through and be vulnerable with and, and not be ashamed when people told them to be ashamed. Um, and going forward, what do I hope for my daughter who happens to be transgender, right? And, and her definition of femininity and being brave and courageous and not being ashamed because she doesn't have a biological body that defines her in that particular way and what that meant to be a woman, you know, in our time, right? So, so it's just really beautiful. I love, I love this topic and I'll, I'll let someone else make a comment now. And I, and I also noticing there's some comments in here about 
uh, laws being the consequence of failure of ethical systems, especially of scale? I think that's an interesting question. Yeah, I can put it up here. Dr. Jessica, do you want to address the the what Dr. Dreisbach had to say? Oh yes, uh, the, you know the the sharing is so deep and rich, and there's so many possible ways to <laughs> jump from it. You were speaking about vulnerability and the fear of being vulnerable, and and this is universal. And some people will cover it up with being arrogant, and some people cover it up with taking space, and some people cover it up with all these different, you know, tactics that we use to protect our vulnerability. And what you were saying is, in the end, um, you know, I'm going to quote a dear friend of mine, who um, such a beloved colleague, unfortunately passed from illness um, about two decades ago now. And we used to spend every Sunday lunch, almost every Sunday lunch together, we'd head down to Chinatown, we'd order up our favorite food, and we'd sit, we always had the same corner table out near out near a window in our favorite China's, Chinese food restaurant in Chinatown here in Montreal. And we'd go for a late lunch, we'd hit just after the lunch crowd so we could have kind of privacy to talk. And we would spend a good two to three hours sitting there just hashing over um, various challenges that we faced in our private practices, our teaching, our work, and stuff like that. And, and one thing that he said that was such a great gift was people make the mistake about vulnerability. They don't understand that when you are willing to go to your most vulnerable place, you find there the place of greatest strength. Mm. And I am so grateful for that teaching that he shared with me. And, and, and it has stayed with me. I have shared it. I have passed it on. Here, take this nugget of gold. Make it yours. Okay. And I don't own it. Uh, it's for everyone. And, um, and, and it has helped me that knowing that if I am willing to go to that place that in this moment feels really scary and breathe and open, then it will become a place of strength for me. Why? Because it returns me to authenticity. Mm. It restores my dignity. Hey, people, I don't, I don't, I see so much in our culture. I'm so sorry. This is going to sound very judgmental. And okay, I own it. It is. But I don't see a lot of dignity. When I do see it, I'm, I want to stand up and applaud. Okay. And there seems to be a lack of dignity. I don't know how else to describe it. So are laws the consequence of the failure of ethical systems, especially at scale? Well, if I think I understand the question, I think that um, laws were developed out of ethical, philosophical discussions, okay? And if we look at when the first ethical codes went into place, it was actually just after the Second World War at the Nuremberg Trials. I'm not talking about the ancient ones that we were talking about, philosophical codes and things that are written on the Sumerian tablets. And I'm talking about modern codes, okay? That codes of conduct were in, started to be really codified and, and put into place uh, around many issues. And, and it became evident that these were needed. And, and, and I love what you said about dead documents and living document, documents. I actually wrote it down. And because this is what I told everybody about the documents in our churches, these are living and they, they need to, you know, they will evolve. And 
I feel like I am forever reviewing. It's more than frequently than annually our administrators' guidelines, our members' guidelines. If something else pops up and we sit down and scratch our heads and I draft something, we all review it. Yeah, it needs to be included and <laughs> reissue. And so, yes, these things do need to be evolving. And anytime you take, you know, there's nothing wrong with, let's say, the Ten Commandments, okay? But the Ten Commandments didn't address a whole lot of things that were happening then that needed to be addressed. Okay, so you know it's a, it is what it is. Um, so laws are they a failure of ethical systems? I think it's a failure of human dialogue, mm. and in which people who are in the world of of laws. My daughter is a lawyer. She's now a federal judge. So I've been exposed to lots of my work in legalization with the with Health Canada. I have friends who joke asking me when I'm going to get my honorary law degree. I don't think <laughs> ever. Um, I, I had to immerse myself in so many aspects of the law. And I see that there's a complete lack of, of dialogue. And part of that is just the reality is everybody is so busy trying to focus on, you know, focus on, you know, the the knee specialist and the shoulder specialist. I had a torn rotator cuff a year and so I had to see an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in shoulders. He doesn't do knees. Yeah. <laughs> specialist in shoulders. When I had I had a torn meniscus, I had absolutely marvelous a physician, surgeon, orthopedic surgeon who only does knees. Okay. And so that's the reality. So you have lawyers, you know, I watched my daughter, she's so specialized in her field. And, you know, she would say, Mom, don't ask me anything about, you know, divorces or this or that, because like, this is my area of, of, of this is my area of expertise. So what happened is we have so much knowledge and so much stuff that we have to sort through and learn. I think that that has been an important part of understanding why things got so separated and we can say okay that's a reality but where does the dialogue happen so if we can bring it back into entheogen psychedelics yeah. and ethics looking at the clock um what can we say about if let's imagine the three of us are sitting let's take something really tangible and work with an exercise can i propose that let's say that the three of us are sitting in a circle with some other doesn't matter how many people but they're all new in the field of psychedelics or from different backgrounds they're all interested in doing psychedelic therapy or starting a business or opening a clinic what would the three of us say can i throw that out well what would you say first well I, 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 what would i say first is welcome and thank you so much for your open-mindedness <laughs> Can we all take a moment and meditate and maybe say a, a non-denominational prayer and set our intention as to what this dialogue is about? That it isn't about one group of people trying to impose or in control, because that's been a conversation that's happened a lot that I see happening in various conferences and and you know chat boxes on on in LinkedIn or what have you is that some people are pointing fingers. You're trying to control the industry. No, mm. you're trying to control the industry. No, these things should be in place. No, these things should be. Okay, how do we have a larger conversation? So let's imagine we're in that larger conversation. What 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 are we setting out? For me, it would be each of you speak as to what to, what you see as being the passion 
that is taking you into this field and what experiences, education or knowledge do you feel you would be bringing to this field? And what do you feel that you would need? Would you need something more, learn something more, have something more in the environment, um, colleagues, what have you? What else would you need so that the, the possibility of higher good would come from your practice? That's what I think I would be asking. In the ceremony or the larger conversation, the more. The... <laughs> I mean, Lynette, when I, I, I mean, I, I got a conversation after we lit the candle and said a prayer. Let's, let's see what I can hit here in these last few minutes. Um, <laughs> uh, first, to, to address the the question that the person, like I, I think part of um, a yes and to, to what Jessica was bringing up earlier, I also want to bring up the fact that uh, if they're designed for scale, that's we should understand that they're made for scale, mm. that they're not made for the the interpersonal. Right. And so the limits of the system are the construct in which it was created. Um, it's the shadow of that. So um, so that's part of the reason. Um, and I wouldn't and I would also disagree with the premise that that laws are, uh, again, like not a not a consequence of a failure of ethical systems. They're actually often a, a, a structured way of codifying um, what um, we believe as individuals and back to the person in the ceremony, as well as to the larger space that um well first my instinct was to say like well you can choose not to be here mm -hmm. uh, give them the freedom of autonomy to recognize that they they that's their sovereignty that i want to recognize and that make sure it's still in alignment for them but um but back on terms of ethical systems and values that we're having in this conversation it's really important for me for individuals to bring into their awareness what they value and that they have their own internal guidance mm -hmm. that can help connect them to that so to seek that out first. Nice. Wow. Really well said. That was really well said. I I don't know if I could how dare you I have to follow something like that. But <laughs> <laughs> what would you say in the ceremony? I would start with our connection to patterns. I would say that I would try to bring in the idea that as the earth spins, it breathes and it expands and it contracts. Our breath expands and contracts and our life even expands and contracts. And I think that that is a place where we can begin for us to see ourselves as a similar energy. And then we can move forward from there. Like I said, how dare I have to follow that? That's all I got. Yeah, I love I mean. that. There's, there's actually traditions that say, um, as, as uh, was it, is it Indra? As, as Indra breathes out, um, universes are formed, you know, and then breathes yes. out again, like, and then they die and are reborn in every single moment. So appreciate um, the universes and co-creation we've, we've had together today. This was amazing. This is, and it's we. I feel like we just kind of scratched the surface. I'm hopeful we can come back and continue to have our conversation because I think we could have taken it in a lot of different directions. But I really want to say to both of you, I really appreciate what you're doing. I'm thankful that you're here speaking with me, and I feel honored to get to host both of you on this platform. I wish you all the greatest success, and I'm looking forward to our future conversations. Before I let you go, I usually sum up the show with each individual talking about where, where they can be found, what they're doing, and what they're excited about. So I'd like to start first off with you, Dr. Dreisbeck. Where, where can people find you? What do you have coming up, and what are you excited about? Uh, you can you can find me on the Epic Psychedelic site. Um, I work in community, and I always try and uplift that that work. You can always look at my name. I, I'm never great about my own website. I'm working on that. It's my growth edge. <laughs> but what I'm excited about um, is, is this. You know, conversations and being in community and, and sharing love and support for one another. That That's what excites me is working in community. So thank you for being in community with me, both of you. 
Yeah, pleasure's all mine. Dr. Uh, Jessica Rochester, where can people find you? What do you have coming up and what are you excited about? Um, well, people can find me through my website, um, Reverend Dr. Jessica Rochester, and um, I I'm, I'm offer on my website a lot of uh, videos and audios uh, free for educational purposes. Um, I highly encourage people, if you're interested in this work, to have a look at my books and uh, see if they talk to you. And if they do, you know, my joy, my joy. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the, what am I excited about? Um, I love these conversations. It's a great joy for me to, uh, it, when we were doing that research project on, um, you know, entheogens and psychedelics in, in Canada, um, the joy was working with some already well-known and beloved colleagues and and then it kind of blew open and all of a sudden there were the, all these other people who through this one and that one and this one and that one or who heard about it and contacted us saying hey I heard that you're working on this I'd love to jump in and what happened was this network of of wonderful people who are all, all interested in in really assuring the the next step here is a healthy one, is a fair one, interested in sustainability of this. And, and we're all clear on the distinction between entheogens and psychedelics. Um, equity, um, availability for all, credentialing, education, ethics, that we're all on the same page with these conversations. And, and again, it's a living page. It's something that, that is evolving as people come in and ask more questions and, and bring contributions. And so um, it's a wonderful moment. And um, if we can navigate through uh, with wisdom and enough people in the community who are really interested in uh, what's for the higher good of the larger community here, not just what, how's my personal clinic going to do, or how's my personal practice going to do, or how good am I going to look on that talk show, you know, there's, there's so, oh, you know, and we need to own, okay, this is all part of us, and we all have this inside of us, it's all there, but we have to have a sense of humor about it. And, and be willing to own it and take responsibility for it and not let those parts of us make our decisions. Okay, that's, that's the thing that, you know, I don't want my inner child to make my life decisions. Okay, my spoiled brat. So um, it's, life has so much beauty on the other side. There's so much difficulty. And I think that what is the core, I'm hoping, you know, the message I give when I'm speaking publicly, and people ask me, I see the plants are giving a message. It's in the introduction to my books. The plants are simply speaking through me. Mm -hmm. This isn't my message. I feel that this is their message. It has nothing, it has everything to do with me personally and nothing to do with me personally, which is please everybody wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, open your eyes, see what's happening with Mother Earth, see what's happening to our planet and do what you can do. You know, do what you can do. Awaken your consciousness, awaken, awaken, and turn again to love yourself, the divine nature and community, and find a way to serve it. I love that. Thank you for that. That was all that make, I feel like I got goosebumps. Thank you. Appreciate oh. it. <laughs> Ladies, I really enjoyed every part of this and again i just want to say how thankful i am i i really feel like the message being put out by both of you is 
is resonating with a lot of people. And I, I hope you know how thankful the community is to you. So with that being said, I know I'm keeping you longer than the hour. I really appreciate coming over. And if you hang on for just one more second, I'm going to end the broadcast here. But I wanted to speak for you real briefly after this. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining the True Life Podcast. Please go to the show notes and reach out to both of these incredible individuals. It will make your life a little bit better if you take time to read what they're saying. That's all I got for today. Aloha. Mahalo. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.